Hey, good morning, everyone. How many of you, this ever happened to you, you're, you're driving to a familiar spot, maybe some place that you drive over and over again, you get to that place and you think back, did I stop at the stop sign? Did I stop at the traffic light? We, we call that being in the zone. You're, you're, you're thinking about something else. You're so familiar about going to that place that you're in the zone. In fact, uh, that, that's a being in the zone is, is, is a sports term for athletes when, when they are just on fire. A, a basketball player, when he puts up 30 or 40 points and, and it's just, it's just hitting every basket that he could hit, they'll say, you were in the zone. And then they play the next game and they can't, they can't hit the broad side of a barn, right? Because they were in the zone for that one uh, game. That, 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 that happens to me a lot of times when I'm driving from my house down Ridge Road to the church. And, and I estimated um, how many times I have driven down Ridge Road from my house to the church, which is just about three and a half miles. Um, I estimated that I've, uh, next month will be my 15-year anniversary here at Living Word. 15 years. Thank you for putting up with me. Amen. Um, so I estimated how many times have I driven that back and forth through my house? Well, I, I calculated, and it, it's around 8,700 times that I've driven back and forth. Now, what happens is when we travel down the same road that many times, we get so familiar with that road that we can tend to forget many times, did I stop at that stop light? Did, did, I, did, did I stop for the traffic uh, signal? And, and many times I've gotten to church and I'm like, I don't even remember. I don't even remember going through the four corners in Ontario. I don't even remember. Did, did I, did I, I must have because other, hopefully there wasn't a police officer there. I didn't get an accident, but you're so in the zone and you're so familiar with your surroundings that you tend to forget at times. Now, if we're not careful, careful, familiarity can be a very dangerous thing, whether it's familiarity in your marriage or you begin to take things for granted or it's familiarity in your spiritual life where it can become mundane, mundane and dry. We can get familiar with church. Uh, maybe we, we sit in the same seat every Sunday. Right? Okay, now it's it. No. So, so maybe, maybe next week, Sit somewhere different for a change. Just, just mix it up for me. I know it's probably going to mess up my whole preaching because I'm going to be all messed up because you're all going to sit in different places. And then you're not going to think that I noticed you so you don't get credit. You don't get church credit that week, right? <laughs> so you're like, I was there, Pastor. I go, I didn't see you sitting in your seat. No, I was there, Pastor. I was just in the back row this time. I know I normally sit towards the front, but I, but I was there. I, I, I was. I still get the church credit. Um, today, what we're going to look at, as you saw in the video, we're going to look at King David. Now, we, we've kind of looked at, we're going to look at two sides of, 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 of King David. And if you've been here for any length of time, you know that we're in the midst of a series called The Story, where we're taking the major stories of the Bible, and we're connecting them with the story of the Bible of God's redemption of man. So we're going through the whole Old Testament right now, and we're looking at all these major stories and how do they, how do they work with the story of the Bible, the major story of the Bible and God's redemption for man. And so we're all plugging these small pieces of the puzzle together 
to put them together to see how God has a plan for man and it's all fulfilled in his son Jesus. So these stories aren't stories within themselves. They're actually stories of a bigger story that God, God definitely has a plan for man and it's all fulfilled in his son Jesus. And so we're looking at this story right now of when kings ruled Israel. And, and we're, we're looking at, at, at Israel's most popular and famous king, and that's King David. And last week, we talked about David and how he was anointed by the prophet uh, Samuel to, to, to do great things for God. And God saw that he was a man after his own heart, that he loved God. And, and so we talked about um, David and Goliath, how David went out and slew this huge giant of a man, that was representing the Philistines and how God used him through his power to defeat this enemy. We know that Goliath symbolizes sin and there's no way that we can overcome sin and our own strength and we need obviously the help of Jesus Christ to overcome the sin in our life and that we can't do it ourselves. And so last week we looked at David in this one light. We looked at David in the light of being this mighty warrior, this you know, someone that, that you would not think could ever slew this giant, but in the power of God with one stone slewed this giant Goliath. We're going to turn the page today, though, because if we many times we know the story about David and Goliath. We maybe learned it in Sunday school as a kid or that's one story that mostly everybody would recognize. But many times we don't dig deeper into David's life. We, we kind of end it, end it there, and that's about all we know about David. But we're going to kind of turn the other page. And the other page of David is not so pretty. We, 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 we know basically two main stories about David. We know about David and Goliath. And then probably the other story we know about David is David and Bathsheba. And that's what we looked at today in the video. Two are very different stories. One is a story of victory, which is fun to talk about. It's fun to learn about. The other story is not so fun because this is a story of defeat. And let me say this before we get started. The thing that will cause your downfall in your life is not the physical trials that you go through. I'm just going to tell you that. The, the majority of people I've seen in their lives that have gone through tremendous physical trials those are the things that usually do not defeat them. Usually, those are the things that actually make them stronger. It's amazing what people can do through trials. Don't you love hearing those stories about how people overcome tremendous things in their lives and how it makes them stronger? Those are the stories we, we love to hear about. Tremendous trials of maybe health or death of a loved one or a job lost, and they came through stronger. And we love to listen to their stories because they encourage us. They help us to move forward in our own trials, in our own life, that we too can also move forward. But the one that I see the most defeating is not the physical, but the moral. It's not the, it's not the physical trials that cause our downfall but it's the moral. It's the inward decay. It's the gradual slipping away from God. It's the lowering and lowering of our standards. I, I was reading a little bit about Robin Williams after his tragic death and about depression and it just really bothered me, you know, when, when I hear things like that, people ending their lives in that way. And it really bothered me. I began to read a little bit more about Robin Williams, the great comedian. Remember, you, I, I used to love Robin Williams and Mork and Mindy. Remember, Nanu, Nanu. You know, I used to, I used to love watching that as a kid. And um, he, he had a quote that I read that really bothered me. And this is what Robin Williams says. He says, I was violating my standards faster than I could lower them. I was violating my standards faster than I could lower them. And what can happen in our lives is 
The things we thought, and it happened, I'm not pointing the finger at Robin Williams, but this is all of us in our lives. This, this can happen too. The thing that, that we thought we would never do, we start to compromise. And a little bit by little bit, we begin to give in. It may not be as, as, as fast and quick maybe as others, but little bit by little bit, we compromise and we begin to do the things that we never thought we would do. And then what we do is we, we draw the line in the sand and we say, I'm not going to cross this line. I, I've drawn the line in the sand. I've set the standard in my life and I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to um, cross this line. And then we cross the line and then we redraw the line again. And we say, okay, I'm not going to cross this line. Because I've crossed this line, but I'm not going to cross this line because this line is really bad. And then, and then we cross that line. Then we draw another line. And we say, well, I'm not going to cross that line because that line's really bad. And then we end up crossing that line until we find ourselves in such a pit of despair that when we look back over our lives, we ask ourselves, how did I get here? How did I get from here where I thought I had so much ambition, I thought I would never do the things I thought I would do. I knew that those things were wrong. And how did I get to this point in my life where now I'm looking back with so much regret and so much guilt because I said to myself, I would never do those things. I want you to understand this morning that our moral demise starts way before the action of actually giving into that temptation ever occurs. It's a matter of the heart that we need to protect. What happened to David was it was something was happening to his moral character. What happened to David is exactly the same thing that can happen to us if we're not careful, that we have to guard our heart. Listen to me carefully. We have to guard our heart with everything that we have to, to guard our heart against familiarity. Because what begins as when we begin to get used to things, we drop our guard. And we begin to do things that we thought we would never do because we get familiar with our surroundings. And, and what begins to happen is, is our heart gets callous. It can happen in our marriage relationships, our family relationships, our, our work relationships, our jobs. When we get real familiar with those things, we, we tend to, to, to drop our guard down if we're not careful. And then we end up doing things we thought we would never do. And so what I want to do is I want to read Second Samuel for you. And I want to show you the progress of, of David's demise and, and what happened in his heart. Because it's more than just simply a man committing adultery. There's something deeper going on in this story than David just doing something that he knew that he shouldn't do. And say, okay, you're bad, David. Just repent before the Lord and let's move on. I, I want to look at the heart of this issue that, that I believe if we can understand the progression of David's heart, my prayer for you, this would be something that's going to help you in your life and maybe in the choices that you make in your life to keep you from making those wrong choices that can eventually lead to your demise. So I don't care if you're a teenager this morning, somebody that's older, adult. Th this applies to every single one of us, including myself, in this room of how do we guard our heart against Familiarity. So let, let's look at this story between David and Bathsheba. It's 2 Samuel chapter 11. You, if you've got your Bibles, you can follow along here. You can look at the screens. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version this morning. But, uh, and those are the Bibles that are in, in your seats if you want to grab those. And if, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, the Bibles in your seats are free. Don't add it to your collection. But if you don't have one, they're free for you. You're more than welcome to take those and read those. Those are free. Um, so let's start with... Um, let's start with Chapter 11, let's start with verse 1. It, it says this, in, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent 
Joab, and his servants with him, and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David, but David remained at Jerusalem. That's going to be key to the story. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch, put the remote down, and was walking on the roof of the king's house. David was bored. And that he saw on the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent to inquire about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam? The wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messenger and took her. And she came to him and he lay with her. And now she had been purified herself from her uncleanliness. And then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. And she told David that I am pregnant. What is going on in this story? Where do you go? This is, this is how my mind works. Where do you go from relaxing on a couch to sleeping with another man's wife. That just sounds crazy. I mean, I mean, normally no one's just going to do that. There's, there's something deeper going on here in David's heart that allowed him to get to this point to where he knew where the line was, that he crossed that line, that he crossed that line, that he crossed that line to where he's now just completely disobeying the commandments of God. Thou shalt not commit adultery. David knows the commands. David knows the word of God. So why does, he do, why does he do this? You see, the answer is in the first part of this chapter. When kings go off to war, David stayed home. David wasn't supposed to be where he was supposed to be. David was supposed to be off at war with everybody else. But as the king, he can make his own choices and he can decide what he wants to do. And so he probably just says, you know, I've, I've killed a lot of people. You know, I've, I've done my war stuff. You know, I, I deserve a little break. I deserve to stay home. So David wasn't supposed to be there. So he's on the couch. He's bored. He's flipping through the channels. Nothing's on TV. What's new, Right. So he sees Bathsheba, and now he has two choices. One is to look away, or one is to keep looking. And so what David was looking, he wasn't you know, maybe some creepy guy with binoculars looking around. He just happened to be up there, and there was the temptation before him. And so here's the temptation before him. But instead of looking away, he inquires. That's the first line he crosses. He inquires. Instead of looking away, he goes, oh, and I'm, I'm more interested in this. So he crosses the first line. He goes through the first stop light. The next step for him was that he wanted to inquire about her. And then he says, okay, would you please bring her to me? So now he knows somebody says, hey, wait a minute. This woman is married to Uriah. There's the next line. So he knows that she's married now. So now he knows, okay, this needs to stop right here. It, it goes no further. You're married. It goes no further. This is a sin before God. I'm not going to do this. End of story. But he doesn't do that. He crosses the next line where he actually has them bring her 
to him. And so was it a sin to see her at first? No, because he could have looked away. Where it crossed the line is when he took it further. So what happened to David is his heart was away from God way before the sin ever occurred. See, this is where the guarding of our heart is so important. Sin just doesn't happen overnight. Where sin happens is in the recesses of our heart, where we begin to compromise a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and we begin to justify those compromising situations in our lives until we justify our heart, we justify our actions to the point where we do something that we know is wrong. And what begins to happen is our hearts begin to become very callous towards the things of God. Our hearts become callous towards the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, where we begin to justify our actions and what we're doing. And that's exactly what happened to David. What happened to David is his heart was away from God. He became familiar. He became complacent. And the things of God stopped touching his heart. So you, you have to, we have to ask ourselves, well, well, whose fault is it? Is it David's fault? Is it Bathsheba's fault? Well, the, the Bible specifically tells us in James 1, 14 and 15, it says, but each person is tempted when he is, when he or she is lured and enticed by their own desires. Then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. So where's the blame? Well, the blame lies within our own hearts. We're lured and we're enticed when we're enticed by our own desires. And so what David did here is he left his heart unguarded. It's interesting, uh, I, you know, all of you know I love to fish, and when you're fishing with a lure, you're, you're thinking, well, Fish is so dumb to go after a lure. It's not, it's, it's not live bait. It's, it's, it's a lure. And if you look at that word, for each person is tempted when he is lured, that's a very interesting word in the Greek because the, the word lure there is, is, is really talking about it, it's, it's something that's made to look real, but it's not. So, so when we're lured, we're lured into something that, that, that it's made to look good. It's made to look like the real thing, but it really isn't. It's not the real thing. It's, it looks like the real thing, but behind it is a hook. And the fish are lured by which looks like a fish or a live bait. And they look like it's easy prey. They take the lure. They, they take the false Bait, and they're fooled to believing that it's food. And so behind it is the hook. And see, that's exactly, that's why I love this word lure in James, because that's exactly what happens, because we are lured away, and, and, and that's exactly what sin does. Um, it, it lures us away. It, it, it hooks us. It entices us. But behind the facade is a hook that will lead you away. So what God does is God sets guardrails in our relationships, our relationships with him and our relationships with others. For what reason? To keep us from having fun? No, to keep us from the devastating effects of sin. And so now what we do in in, in our country is we redefine things not to make them seem as bad as they are, right? So 
Instead of saying something's like an adulterous affair or, or a, a, adultery, we call it an affair, right? An affair. It makes it a little bit nicer. Um, instead of saying that, that something is a sin or something that we've um, disobeyed God on or we've disobeyed his word, we just say, I made a mistake. I just made, you, you never hear someone saying, you know what, I sinned. We say, I made a mistake. Or we say things like, I'm only human, right? We, we try to downplay it a little bit. And I think this is what's going on. David is, is to the point where he's compromising, where he, God's not graving his heart. Where, where is this shepherd boy who was in the fields, who was, who was singing songs to God, who had this close relationship with God, this, this young shepherd boy who loved, who loved God, who God saw him and saw his heart. God chose him and picked him to be the leader of Israel. Where is this boy now? This boy is home. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's sitting on the couch. He's bored and he's left his heart unguarded. And so what he does is, he finds out that Bathsheba is, is pregnant. So now David has a dilemma. What does he do? Well, he's got a couple plans here. He begins to scheme. So plan A is, he goes, I'll bring him home from war, thinking that he'll sleep with his wife. Uriah doesn't because he's an honorable man, because he says, how can I do such a thing when all my fellow soldiers are fighting out this war? Why would I enjoy relations with my wife when everybody else is away? So he doesn't. He doesn't go and, and, and sleep with her. So now it's like, okay, David, what, what do I do now? Plan B, David invites Uriah over and gets him drunk. I says, well, this will work. Now he's inebriated, so let's, let's get him drunk and let's let him sleep with his wife. Still doesn't do it. Now plan C, what David does is he sends word to Joab, his military leader, and tells him to put Uriah on the front lines where he will surely die. And that's exactly what happens. Not only is David committing adultery or committed adultery, but now he commits murder because he knew exactly what was going to happen. This wasn't an honorable move by David. So now you would think, well, there's the end of the story. David marries Bathsheba. Uh, makes it look good, right? What a spin doctor David is now, right? Makes it look good. I'll marry her. I'll do the honorable thing by marrying her and I'm going to be the good guy coming to the rescue. All's done. End of story. How many know that it doesn't work that way? How many know that, that, that we, we eventually will reap the things that we sow? Not so fast. God sends the prophet Nathan to David to tell him a story. He sits David down and says, David, let me tell you a story here. There, there's two men. One man has a bunch of cattle, a bunch of herds, and another man has just one. One little lamb. The lamb is named Fluffy. They even have a pet name for this lamb. Fluffy. Fluffy is their pet lamb. They, they love this lamb. They, they, they allow the lamb in. They've got a little bed for the lamb. Uh, he sleeps by the bed of the, of, 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 of the owners, and they just love Fluffy. Fluffy is the best lamb in the whole world, and they just love Fluffy. And this other guy, this rich guy, he's got tons of flocks. He's just loaded. He's rich. He's got everything. And he says, one day, a traveler came, and, and uh, he was going to stay, and so they wanted to prepare a feast for him. And so this rich man, instead of taking one of all the sheep he had, he goes over to his neighbor's, and takes Fluffy. And he kills Fluffy and serves Fluffy to 
the rich man. Now, how, what do you think about that, David? Taking something that's not yours. Duh. Are you getting the story, David? Right? You're taking some. What do you think? And David was enraged. Where is this man? I'll kill him myself. Nathan looks at him and says, you're the man. You're the one. This is the sin that you've committed with another man's wife. Ruh-roh. Right? Uh-oh. And so from that point, David now is humbled. And, and David does repent, which is good. And if you read Psalm 51, that is, that is probably one of the greatest psalms of repentance that you will ever read. And, and David cries out to God because of his sin. Thank God for that. There is, how many know there is restoration? And there is forgiveness that comes through that. And so David now repents, but it's not without the consequences. And, and so here's what I just want to, in the crux of the message here, here's what I want to give to you today. All of us have made mistakes. All of us have guilt and regret in our life from mistakes that we have made. So what are the warning signs that I'm headed down a road of familiarity? What are the warning signs? I just want to give you some. I believe this is going to help you in your life. And, and we're going to end by hopefully helping you with regrets and guilt that you have from your past to find healing and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I believe that is available to everyone who calls out to the Lord. But let me give you the warning sign here. I believe this is a warning sign. If David would have heeded this warning sign, he would have avoided very dangerous compromising situations. And what's, what's, Amazing about the story of redemption is that God still uses this horrible situation in this marriage through Bathsheba to redeem it. And eventually through this, through that line of David would come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen? Isn't it amazing how God can redeem? Isn't it amazing how God can restore? It's just amazing to me. But let me just jump into this before we wrap it up. Let me just jump into this because I believe this thing can help us. Here's what can save you from becoming too familiar with things. Listen to me closely. Guard your heart against position. Because here's what happens. Many times when we are in, placed in a position, it becomes an entitlement to us. So let me explain it this way. When I say I deserve this because of my position, watch out. When position becomes an entitlement, you better watch out. Here, let me give you some examples. I've worked for this company for all these years. I can do this or take this. Um, we can say things like, um, I can do it better, or my wife doesn't treat me well, or my husband doesn't treat me well, or blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to start talking to this other person. There's this entitlement. When I get a sense of entitlement, I lose my heart for service. See, what, 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 what David forgot was his job was not to stay back, but it was to be a leader. He was to lead his army. He was to be that example to them that this is what God has called me to do. I need to lead you. I should have been out in war. I should have been leading you. But instead, he was back home by himself getting bored. You see, when that sense of entitlement 
comes, I lose my heart for service. When I feel like I'm owed this or, or look at who I am or look at what I've done, guard your heart from this title of position. You see, let me give you an example. At Living Word, membership looks like this. Membership is not like American Express where membership, you have your privileges. In fact, just the opposite is true. When you're a member here at Living Word, you lose your privileges. Because membership is all about serving. The higher we go, the more we bend. With more responsibility, we lose our rights. And if you get this, you will not fall prey to entitlement. And you will not be enamored with your position. So basically, I, I, I was taught this so many years ago, and this has been just implanted in my brain, and I think this is a, a good example of how the church should work and how we should work in the body of Christ, because this will keep us humble. This will keep us with a servant's heart. Let me explain it this way. Um, I, I've got a little diagram for you here, and I, I want to show you this diagram. Just look at the screens. And here's what I want to show you. Look, look at this triangle here. At the bottom, you see rights. At the side, you see responsibilities. Now, let me explain it this way. At the bottom there, if, if, if you come to the church and you're a visitor, you're a guest of our church, you're someone that has all the rights and no responsibilities. You come, we love to have you come, you, you sit, you get a gift, you get a mug, you know, you're welcome, that's great, we love you, there's no responsibilities, we're not asking you to do anything, we're not asking you to give in the offering, we just want you to come enjoy the presence, presence of the Lord. Then you, you start coming for a while and you're like, man, this preacher is just awesome. He's just the best preacher <laughs> In all of Ontario, right? <laughs> and, so, and so then you say, well, you know what? I, I, I want to get locked into the church. So I want to be part of it. I want to be committed to the church. And so you take that next step of membership. So what happens is you gain some responsibilities and you lose some of your rights. Now it's like, oh, wait a minute. I don't get a mug every week I come. I mean, I don't get a gift card every week I come. No, those are reserved for our guests, for first-time guests. So now you come and you say, well, now I've got to be committed to come, and, and, and now I've got to be committed to maybe serve, maybe let God use my gifts and talents in the church. So now you go up a little bit higher. Now you become a ministry worker. Now you have more responsibilities and lose more of your rights because now you have to do stuff. Now you're like, okay, now I've got to give my talents. I'm expected to be where I signed up. I'm expected to show up. You know, now you start to lose more of... You're right. Now it's like, man, I know the pastor and, you know, he, he, he starts to know my life or I know the people around me. So now I'm starting to lose my rights. Now you say, okay, now you become like maybe a ministry leader where you actually lead a ministry. And this is where now you got to show up. You got to lead other people. You can't not show up. You know, now it's like, now you lose more of your rights. Even if you're a ministry worker, maybe you're teaching Sunday school. You just can't say, well, do I want to come today or not? Because you know, all those little kids are going to be waiting for you and they can't wait for your Bible stories. So you can't choose whether or not you're going to come. You've got to come because, because that's your responsibility. And then maybe, maybe God, you know, maybe there, there's a position where you all of a sudden become a deacon in the church where you're one of the leaders of the church, where you're making tremendous decisions and response, uh, it's tremendous responsibilities and decisions that you make for the church. Now you're laying more, more of your rights down and more of your rights down. Now look at who's at the top of the pyramid. It's the pastors. We... We have all the responsibilities, but yet we lose all our rights because God calls us to serve. We're your shepherds. We're not at the bottom. We're at the top. We're supposed to lead. See, David lost sight of this somewhere. Somewhere down the line, David lost sight 
that he is to lose his rights and he should have been out on the field leading his troops. Somewhere down the line, David felt this sense of entitlement that everything revolves around me and my needs. And maybe that's why he felt the sense of entitlement to even take another man's wife. I once heard a pastor say this. He said, no sin is beyond restoration, but neither is it without consequences. You see, David paid greatly because his family was a train wreck. And we know that that baby died and then he had a son, Absalom, and, and Absalom was just horrific. And David paid greatly because of his son's mistakes. And eventually his son would die at the hands of David's soldiers because Absalom was, was coming against David and his leadership. Now you may sit there and you say, man, pastor, this is such a downer, man. What a downer of a service. But here's, here's what I want to end with today. How could David be forgiven of all the sins he made? Of all the mistakes that he made? How could David be forgiven of those things? Here's where the small part of the story of, okay, David made a mistake because that's the end of the story and he repents. Here's where the small part of the story fits in with the large story of God redeeming us and mankind. Romans 3.25 says this. God didn't overlook David's sin. God didn't bat an eye. God didn't whitewash it. God knew full in advance that he would eventually send his son to give his life for our sins and David's sins that he committed. Listen to Romans 3.25. Paul puts it this way. Whom God put forward as a propitiation, talking about Jesus by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. God knew full in advance that his son would eventually come and ultimately die for the sins that David committed. So David didn't get away with anything. Jesus would eventually die a horrible death for the sins that, that, that he committed in the past and, and, and the sins that, that he would continue to commit. And it works the same way for us, that Jesus dies for our past sins. He dies uh, for our future sins that, that we will commit. And my confession in Christ through repentance is the key for that forgiveness. And David shows us that example in Psalm 51. See, even though we live with the consequences of our sin, we don't have to let them define us anymore. Christ is now our new identity. He wipes the slate clean and he presses the delete button. And you can change with Christ's help and allow Jesus to lead your life from this moment forward. How many of you have ever heard of the person John Newton? John Newton. Okay. How many of you have ever heard of the hymn Amazing Grace? Raise your hand. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. Let me give you a little background of, of John Newton. John Newton worked in the slave trade industry in the 1700s in England. He worked in a horrible, horrible profession. Until one day as he was on a ship and, and almost almost shipwrecked. He turns his life over to God. He continues in the slave industry, but eventually God convicts his heart about this horrendous uh, occupation that he, he is involved with. And this is what he writes. He says this. He apologized for, uh, for a confession which comes too late. 
He quotes, I quote him. He says, it will always be a subject of humiliating reflection to me that I was once an active instrument in a business at which my heart now shudders. And then he came to work with those who would want to abolish it. God transformed this sinner, this slave trader, and redeemed him and used him as an instrument for his glory. Towards the end of his death, he, he eventually became a ministry leader, a pastor. And towards the end, he was still working hard, almost blind, couldn't hear. He was still pumping it out for Jesus. And he was going to work hard to the end. And, and, and a friend went to go see him. And he noticed something. And he heard something that John Newton said to him towards the end of his death as, as his health was failing. And this is what John Newton said. The writer of amazing grace. So now every time you sing amazing grace, you're going to understand, like Paul Harvey says, the rest of the story, right? This is what he says. He says, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great savior. See, listen, we, we, we come to the cross with a whole lot of sin, with a whole lot of mistakes, with a whole lot of guilt. And the more we humble ourselves and say, God, I can't do it without your forgiveness. And, and Jesus takes those sins and he washes it with his blood. And he sets you free. And he cleanses you today. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was lost, but now I'm found. And for some of you here today, you need to hear those words of amazing grace. And we're going to close by singing those words of amazing grace today. And as we close today, as we close out this service, I want you to sing those words. Because listen, 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 listen. Don't, don't. You're, you're zoning out on me. Get in the zone. Okay? Zone in on me. You're like, okay, Listen. Here's the issue when we sing a song over and over, like as, as familiar as Amazing Grace is, right? Or any song that we could sing. We can be too familiar with the words and not let the words touch our heart. And so as we sing this this morning, I don't know where you are today. I don't know what you're struggling with today. I don't know what habitual sin you're struggling with. I don't know what guilt you're, is, uh, you're keep being reminded of. I don't know what consequences you're living with today, but amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Allow God's amazing grace to sweep over your soul today. Give your heart, your life, your sin to the Lord and allow his amazing grace to save you today. Hand your life over to him and hear the song Amazing Grace a former slave trader who lives with the regret of his past knows the forgiveness 
of a great Savior. And now his life was found in Christ. His identity now was found in God's Christ.